May each one of you dwell now and forever in the perfect peace of the Savior's embrace. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, I, I'm guessing that that's the sort of image that comes to mind or came to mind when you read the sermon title, The Savior's Arms. The loving, peaceful embrace of Jesus. But arms can have obviously a wide variety of meanings. The word arms itself. It can mean anything from weapons to power to parts of a ship, the yard arm, the branches, to appendages. Lots of different options, aren't there? Context alone will tell you often what the intended meaning is. So when the context is the Savior's arms, we think in terms of well, the first hymn we sang about the Savior's loving arms and being embraced by Jesus and that peaceful place that we know in general as the Savior's arms. What could ever be bad or negative about existing there? What could ever be bad or negative about the Savior's arms? Ask Satan. Ask the devil. He probably knows better than anyone else. He knows that the God, the triune God that we worship, is not always all round and squishy. He's hard-edged. Black and white. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be condemned. Satan thought he could rebel against God the merciful, loving God whose arms are always so peaceful. No, they're not. To rest securely in the arms of God when He is your friend, when He is your ally, there's no better place. But when God is your enemy, when you have rebelled against God, then we see Rightly, the Lord God of Sabaoth, the Lord God of armies, the Lord God of war, the God who says, I will not be mocked. That's where no one wants to be, ever. So our text for this morning will guide us to a better understanding of both this negative and the positive aspect of the Savior's arms. The place we want to be always and the place we never want to be. That text is found in Mark's Gospel, the ninth chapter, beginning there with the 30th verse. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he, Jesus, he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, 
And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is God's word, given to us for our instruction, our growth, our comfort, that our God would grant us these blessings, acknowledging the source of these words, we pray. Sanctify us, set us apart for holy purposes. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. As you heard or read through the text for this morning, you probably noticed that we're taking a little different approach to this section of God's Word than you would normally expect, because the main part of, or one of the main teachings in this, is about ambition and selfish ambition, and the difference between one and the other. You notice, for example, the disciples demonstrating the wrong kind of ambition. It was selfish ambition. It's interesting. I don't know if you put it together, but the second reading for this morning was James. And James identified the bad kind of arguing, the bad kind of ambition, as one who knew, as one who was not innocent himself, clearly, as he was not innocent when he talked about how the tongue is an untamed beast. That tells us many things, one of which is the fact that we ourselves are guilty should never prevent us, prevent us from bringing God's truth into the lives of those around us, including, for example, our children. Well, Dad, how can you say that because you did that? Then make it right. Notice, however, in that in that discussion with his disciples, Jesus did not offer a blanket condemnation of ambition, did he? The Bible never does. In fact, God's word advocates ambition, but the right kind of ambition. You know, summed up in our text of seeking first the good of others, seeking to serve. That seeking is ambition. Paul said to the church in Corinth, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. That's ambition. But it's ambition. The problem with the disciples is they were seeking a selfish ambition, the same one James talked about in our second reading. That's why you have problems. That's why they had problems, because it was wrongly directed. Our God doesn't want Christians to be complacent. He doesn't want Christians who feel sanctified enough, who ever feel like they know enough about God's Word, who ever feel like they're adequate enough in witnessing. He doesn't want groups of believers, Christians, who ever feel that their group is big enough or that 
they're exclusive and we don't want others to grow our group who ever feel like they're pious enough or devout enough or do enough. That's not what God wants. He wants an ambitious church directed for the good of others and the glory of God. If anyone would be first, Jesus said, he must be last of all and servant of all. So that's part of the message of this text. We focus on a little different aspect this morning. We're examining a rather poignant moment. I wonder if you caught it, if it occurred to you, or if it would, if not for the title. And Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, said to them, What a lucky kid. Could you imagine? I mean, you see images, foolishness, but you see images of, of women holding their babies up for the Pope to touch them or bless them or kiss them or throw water on them or whatever he does for them. Imagine, imagine your child or you as a child being taken up in the Savior's arms and that, that assurance of perfect, unending, all-powerful protection Peace, comfort, <coughs> nothing could hurt you. Lucky kid. That's exactly what God did for me, though, isn't it? And you, in our baptism. It's the same thing, it's just lacking the visual. In baptism, his word connected with water, he reached down, wraps his arms around us and says, you are now my child. You are entitled to my love, my care, my protection, as any parent-to-child relationship. But I'm your heavenly Father. I know exactly what's best for you. What an incredible gift. If we but recognize, because we lack again the visual, of Jesus standing right there, reaching out and grabbing that child... And it's like that in so many things that God offers us. In his word, come to me. I'm with you always, but come to me in my word. And there I will enfold you in my arms. The good kind of Savior's arms. Those of you who have suffered, and I assume that includes all of you, should also have some sense of how blessed that little boy was. Maybe you remember how when you were suffering, you felt those arms of the Savior. Something held you up. Something buoyed you. And you couldn't quite put your finger on it, but you had given up on your own strength, and yet you didn't fall. You didn't fall away. <clears throat> Jesus was doing that for you, of course. All, you've all seen, I'm sure, the posters of the two sets of footprints and then the one, and Jesus is carrying us through them. A little corny, maybe, but you get the picture. Who wouldn't want such a thing? Who hasn't yearned for that? Just to be enfolded in the Savior's arms and carried through life. And therein lies the problem doesn't it? 
Because when you examine your life, as I examine mine, there are times, many more times, than I want to even care to admit, where we don't necessarily want the Savior right there, right then. We don't necessarily want him to see what we're doing, hear what we're saying, perceive what we're thinking. Do you recognize how dangerous that is, how bad that is? But it's the truth, isn't it? Can you say every moment of every day, I want the Savior right there with me? Aren't there times when you know you're doing the wrong thing? And you just assume he didn't see or know. You remember the old country song that just fries my bacon? Lord, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight. And it's the barroom scene. He's having so much fun. Prop me up against the jukebox when I die. I hope that song doesn't get stuck in your head. But that's the world's idea. That's the world's idea of what we want from a God. We want a God who will always take care of us. If I'm ever needing of you, then be right here. But there's times when I just kind of want to do my thing. I'll call you if I need you. And then, by the way, will you solve all my problems in life until I'm ready to go home with you? To get this, to understand how dangerous, how bad this is, how strong that old Adam in us is, the devil in the world around us, contemplate that for a moment because then we need to look at the other kind of arms of the Savior. Not those loving, embracing arms that give us such comfort and peace, but the Lord God of Sabaoth arms. The arms of the God who says of himself, I will not be mocked. Do not be, be, be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. How often in your day-to-day -day life do you find yourself hiding or trying to hide from God, a pointless endeavor? How often do you find yourself with Adam and Eve after they'd sinned, thinking they could hide from God in the garden? What a terrible position to be in when we're indulging the sinful flesh. Again, we go back to the reading from James. That's the problem. Why do you have all these contentions and animosity? You're not seeking the right thing. You're not doing the right thing. You're all wrapped up and busy in this world. And you're finding your joy here. Again, you can't be friends with the world and with God. That doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to enjoy life. Of course He does. But in the paths that He dictates... And whenever you're in the position where you want Jesus at arm's length because I'm having so much fun and I want to do this, that tells you the danger of sin. 
Because that's a position no one ever wants to be in, ever. God is our ally, the best. God is as our enemy, the absolute worst. So can you see the danger of sin, the power of sin? That can somehow, that old Adam rising to the floor, stiff-arm God? And I'm not saying with a Christian that puts you in unbelief, that God is your enemy. I'm saying this is the danger of sin that can try to convince you to do that with your God. To not every moment of every day be enfolded in His arms, protected by Him, walking in harmony with His will. If that's not your mindset, something's wrong, very wrong, dangerously wrong. And yet, like little children that wander from their parents' arms, instead, or when something catches their fancy, the Savior always calls us back, always willing, come back, come back. At times, it has to be something difficult. You've seen the brave little kid, I'm sure, that nothing can hurt me. Watch, I can ride my bike with no hands. Smack. They come back to mama for comfort. We're like that. But God doesn't give up on us. Think back now in our text to those disciples walking along the road. And Jesus saw them arguing about something, and he let it go for his own reasons. Again, God's wisdom is awesome. But he just let them go with that for a while. And then when they got to the house, he asked a question. What were you guys talking about? I wish we could put ourselves there because the Son of God asking you a question, it's like a good lawyer. He never asks a question he doesn't know the answer to. You remember what they replied? What was their answer to him? What were you guys arguing about? Not a word. Why? I can just picture them kind of looking down and shuffling and kind of looking away. And, you know, maybe Peter will answer. He's the one that always speaks up for us. And What are you guys talking about? They didn't answer because they didn't want to admit what they were arguing about. Because it was shabby, shallow, self-serving. See the bad position? You see how we can get ourselves into that position? Even his 12 apostles, they were seeking after something that wasn't to the good of their neighbor, the glory of God. And they got all wrapped up in this contention about this stupid argument. And Jesus, all he had to do was ask the question. And then he gave them a visual demonstration, took that child up in his arms. So take some time this next week. This is our assignment. To consciously ask yourself, do I want my Savior right with me here? Do I want him to see what I'm doing? 
Because that old Adam in you is powerful, but we want to put on that new man, and that's in part how we do that. How we become, again, spiritual-minded. How we, again, walk in harmony with our Savior and His will. Do I want Him with me? And if not, I better rethink this. And I'm self-condemned in so many different areas, as I'm sure you are, but you have to do that for yourself. Do you want Jesus to walk with you to the concert? Do you want him to walk with you or sit down with you and watch what you're watching? Would you be embarrassed if he were there? Are you stiff-arming God when you're telling that joke, that story? When you're thinking those thoughts about somebody or something. And use that because that's wisdom that God has now given you. Use that to beat into submission that old Adam. Because that's what's dominant at that point. Jesus once asked his disciples when everyone else, you remember, was leaving him because they didn't like what they were hearing, because they wanted the stuff of the world. And Jesus purposely gave them hard sayings, things that were disagreeable to them, and one by one, or in hordes, they left him. And he turned to his disciples and said, and asked, are you also going to leave? Our response should be, God grant that it is the same as theirs. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of God. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's answer in his epistle, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Be wise enough to understand the circumstances you're in. And then think back to those pictures you've all seen of, of Jesus holding a child close to him. That's what we want. And if you find yourself lacking that at any time during any day, recognize that that desire to be there always is also something our God wants to give to us, and he does through his word. He does help us then to put on that new man so that we are living, thinking, breathing Jesus, not just having him a part of our lives or something that we schedule, but the very heart and center and core of who and what we are. That one, that one who loved us enough to offer his life as payment for what we owed for the sum total of our sins. That one who continues moment by moment to protect us, to reach out in ways that we can never see or perceive, to keep evil or danger away from us, to steer us away from temptation or when we get into trouble, to deliver us from that evil. That one, that's the one we want with us every moment of every day. That's the arms we want enfolded around us. God grant it. For Jesus' sake.